Hello everyone, my name is Sasha and I represent the Ukrainian Student Union of the University of British Columbia, located on the ancestral and unceded territories of the Musqueam people. Today's date, February 24th, is a very significant day for every Ukrainian, and I am so grateful to be able to host a show dedicated to the one-year anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Exactly one year ago on this day, my whole country woke up from the sounds of Russian bombs and aircrafts. And today I am joined by Maria, a prominent Ukrainian activist who lives in Vancouver. You may know her from her Instagram at Vinok Collective, which uses as a platform to promote Ukrainian culture and activism. Hello, Maria. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. Could you tell us more about yourself and the kind of work that you do? Absolutely. My name is Maria, and I'm a Ukrainian immigrant in Canada, in Vancouver right now. I work as an interpreter for PBS, as a freelance interpreter, and most recently we finished a documentary called 20 Days in Mariupol. Uh, of course, this is about the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, and this documentary actually just premiered at Sundance Film Festival and won the Audience Choice Award, so that was really exciting to introduce um, the world to Ukraine and Ukrainians to our fight, uh, and otherwise, uh, I'm an activist here in Vancouver. Congratulations and success on your movie, and can you tell us how the war has affected you as a Ukrainian? Definitely. So I guess I'll start by saying that I'm actually in a very lucky and privileged position, much more privileged than many, many Ukrainians. My parents and my whole family live in Kyiv, but I don't have any family members on the front lines, so my family is more or less safe. And of course, I'm in Canada, so I'm safe. Um, I guess from a material position or like a material perspective, my parents' lives have been affected really greatly financially because their ability to earn an income has been reduced by 75-80%. a lot of their clients have left the country. The economy is really suffering, so it's really difficult to continue earning an income. And inflation is, you know, really, really challenging right now in Ukraine because of the war. But on an emotional and sort of psychosocial level, the war has impacted us in in so many ways. Um, Just in terms of nightmares and constant anxiety, stress, always worrying about the safety um, of my family, my friends, my acquaintances, the entire nation. Um, It's really difficult to even put into words as to what the extent of the, I guess, mental and emotional burden that this has placed on Ukrainians, whether in Ukraine or outside of Ukraine. Thank you, Maria. And now let's listen to the song Russia is a Terrorist State by Tucha. Russia, 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 Russia,
Россия держава терорист. Клеймо расистів і убивців. Росія держава терорист. Хто згорять, як кримське міст. Росія держава терорист. На віки вічні облаки. Росія держава терорист. Росія це держава паразит. Чорна оплава в горищах не грудна канава. Полія полтавського на вас мало. Не по зубам, не по зубами вам ніяк ні. Не по зубам, не по зубами вам ніяк ні. everyone. I'm here joined by an activist from Ukraine, Maria, whom you may also know from her Instagram at Vino Collective. And I would like to ask you, Maria, about your experience of going to Kyiv last year during wartime. Can you tell me about that experience? How was it and how the war changes people? The experience was very surreal because on the one hand, you're in this beautiful European capital city that is gorgeous and people are doing the best they can to continue with some sense of normalcy and carving out a normal life a nor- normal lives for themselves and their families their children uh, to continue earning an income um, but on the other hand you know you have air raid sirens three four five times a day and with every siren there of course is always the possibility of destruction and death and horrible war crimes. So it it was very difficult to reconcile those two realities, how, yeah, on the one hand, you wake up and it's beautiful weather, you're with your family, you're in your home city, you're with the people that you love, you, you know, are going to a cafe or a restaurant, and then you're going to your volunteer shift to make netting and camouflage suits for the army. And then all of this is under the sound of air raids. Um, so it's it's difficult to put into words and to explain to someone who hasn't experienced it. But I guess it was 
trying to make the best of of what we could and and to continue contributing as much as we could to Ukrainian society um, and to towards our eventual victory while also recognizing the fact that we are under attack every moment of every day. Thank you for that. And as a person who left Ukraine in February 2022, I wanted to ask you, what are some secrets of maintaining life during wartime? How come Ukrainians are so resilient and just keep going and live their lives, work, go go to school and universities? Honestly, it was really difficult for me to adjust in the first weeks because I went in August. And so that reality was very new for me. Whereas for my parents, of course, they had been living through that since February. So they were more adjusted to that reality. So for example, for me, every time I heard an air raid when I was home, I would make sure to like leave, you know, my bedroom that has windows and go sit in the hallway. And I would stop everything and make sure that I like took shelter. But for my parents, they just went on with life as normal. And I think that's just a coping mechanism that they and a lot of Ukrainians have had to adjust to because it's um like it's survival. You can't live in a fight or flight response 24-7 for 11 months, like that will just entirely drain your psyche. And the way that my parents explained it to me was it's you have to continue on with your normal life in some sense because otherwise like you will go crazy like you will like the the stress of the war will kill you faster than the war itself um at least for us and again i'm i have to you know emphasize that i'm very privileged my family's very privileged to be in kiev we're not in the east or in the south um i think it's very different if we had been in other cities but um i guess for my family there was a little bit of that cognitive dissonance in knowing that like yes you know a missile or a drone could strike at any moment but they had been safe thus far and so they were banking on continuing to stay safe whereas um i did also get to that point eventually like four weeks in it did take me about three to four weeks about four weeks in when i heard the air rays i didn't really react to them in any way um perhaps you know some people might think that's naive or dangerous or stupid but truly like you day in and day out, every single day, you're having four or five raids a day. If you react emotionally and physically to every single one, you would never sleep, you would never eat, you couldn't function. Um, And ultimately, that is what Russia wants. Russia wants to break the Ukrainian psyche. Russia wants to break the Ukrainian spirit. Russia wants to break Ukrainian resistance. And we can't allow that to happen. So I got to a point where I knew that I had to, I had to rest, I had to eat, I had to hydrate, I, I had to stay strong, and I had to continue contributing in every way possible. So I guess that would apply to a lot of people in just Understanding that you have to continue with life under these circumstances because you have to ultimately contribute in whatever way, whether that is through working and then donating, whether that is through volunteering and making camouflage netting, whether you are an illustrator and you're making, you know, anti-war posters, whatever it is, everyone is contributing in some way. And I think a lot of people have realized that in order to contribute, sorry, to continue contributing to the anti-war effort and contribute to our victory, we have to stay Uh, we have to stay sane. Exactly. And up next, we have a song called Chutihim by Skovka.
В небі чисто мочу because they're the reason I'm alive and so many other Ukrainians are alive. Tell me more about the army and our listeners. How are we still winning? Why are we winning? Uh, we're winning because our army is so diverse. Um, I think, you know, when people think of an army or people think of military power or soldiers, there is this image of just a single type of person. And that is the furthest thing from the truth in our case, because so many people on the front lines in Ukraine, these are not people who are soldiers by career. These are people, ordinary people. These are teachers, professors, artists, fathers, mothers, business owners, activists, um, you know, people that make up all, all parts of Ukrainian society and civil society. And these are people who felt the calling to go and defend our nation, to defend our sovereignty, to defend our independence and democracy. And I think that is really what sets us apart from other armies, especially in particular the Russian army, because Ukrainian soldiers know what we are fighting for. We are fighting for our land, for our way of life, for our our culture, for our language. We are fighting against a genocide. We are fighting against complete ethnic annihilation of the Ukrainian people. And this is what motivates our people. This is what motivates our soldiers. And I had seen a tweet. Uh, I don't know, you know, exactly how accurate it is. But the tweet said, on average, the average Ukrainian soldier has 
two educations, so like a bachelor's and a master's degree. Like the average Ukrainian soldier has two degrees, whereas the average Russian soldier has two criminal sentences. And whether that is, you know, perhaps an exaggeration or not, I think that is a very accurate representation of the difference between our armies. The Ukrainian army is made up of people who are dedicated and committed to protecting democracy and protecting um, Ukrainian statehood and Ukrainian way of life, whereas the Russian army is just made up of thieves and rapists, murderers, um, and just total degenerates. That is all very true. I also saw a tweet somewhere that said that women make up almost 20% of Ukrainian army, which is one of the highest rates among NATO countries, even though Ukraine is not a NATO country. Uh, I think this is a very good example of how advanced our army is and our society is. Um, I also heard that there's a lot of LGBTQ plus soldiers and Ukraine is working towards improving our laws. Um, we can't introduce equal marriage for now, but we are working on introducing same-sex unions. And I'm really looking forward to that because queer soldiers need uh, to be able to pass on uh, whatever they have if they die to their partners. Yeah, I agree with you completely. And I think the fact that there are so many women in the Ukrainian army just further represents that Ukraine and Ukrainians are very deeply invested in notions of equality um, and progress and that we are very, um, I guess, like Western oriented in the sense that we are very committed to moving forward and not looking at the sort of constructs and ideals that Russia is fighting so desperately to return those, you know, very Soviet era constructs of um, just like gender repression and <laughs> sexism and misogyny. Ukraine is fighting for the total opposite and for progress. And for anyone listening that isn't familiar with um, perhaps like the queer scene in Ukraine and hasn't heard of queer soldiers in the Ukrainian army, I really recommend for people to look at LGBTQI military. It's an Instagram account and it profiles queer soldiers and it's it's a very diverse group of people and each post profiles a different soldier and they share a little bit of their backstory, who they are, why they were compelled to join the army. A lot of people actually were living abroad and returned to serve their country. And I think that that is really telling about um, just how much Ukraine means to people. And I think it's also really telling that queer Ukrainians are Ukrainians and that we are part of the Ukrainian social fabric. And um, I think, you know, people would often conflate Ukraine with again, with Russia and lump us in as a very homophobic country. But I think it's really telling that queer people, especially ones who are living abroad, have put their lives on hold and are risking everything to fight for their country. And I think that tells you everything that you need to know about what Ukraine and Ukrainians stand for. Exactly. Going back to the topic of equality in Ukraine, I myself attended many pride events, pride marches, women's marches, and I can say that we've had pride march every single year for the last 10 years, even though, of course, homophobes are still there. It's still happening sometimes. Attacks happen, but we're moving towards a better society. And the last pride parade, which happened in September 2021, did not have any homophobic incidents. And I'm very proud to say that because many people don't believe me when I say that, especially here. They're surprised to hear that, oh, there are queer people in Ukraine and you have prides. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I've definitely had that reaction as well. And I think that comes from an ignorance because, of course, um, we are so often conflated with Russia and Russia has such such harsh and brutal anti-LGBTQ laws. Um, and of course, then we have our neighbor Poland and Poland has been really wonderful in their support during this war. Um, but Poland does have very restrictive laws when it comes to women's rights, reproductive rights, when it comes to queer rights. Um, and so I think just because of where Ukraine is regionally, that that then gets transposed onto us as well. But Kiev is actually a queer hub in, in Eastern Europe. Um, Kiev pride is huge. And I would say that it's very well received. Um, and I would talk again, I guess, about the progress that has been made because when I was in Kiev pride, I marched in, I think, 2016. And it's it definitely, I wouldn't say, was the safest experience of my life. But, you know, the people that have marched in more recent years, and I haven't, like, I haven't been in, in more recent prides, but everything that I have seen and heard from my friends has been really, um, has just shown the progress that has been made. And I think that's really such a crucial thing for us to talk about. It's not that Ukraine has always been this perfect country, this perfect nation, this perfect culture. Of course, every country has its issues. But the fact that our people, our activists, our journalists, um, everybody is working really hard on creating a more inclusive and more diverse, more tolerant society. And these are things that you can measure tangi tangibly and you can measure, like you said that there were no homophobic incidents in this pride. Like, I think that's a really tangible measure of how far Ukrainian society has come. And honestly, like just to give an example from my own personal life, um, like my male cousin, he lives in a really small village and I'm like openly, like openly out to my entire family. There's no one in my family that doesn't know that I'm gay and I've not had any negative reactions. And again, I can't speak for Ukrainians as a whole. Um, like that's just my personal experience. But to have, you know, a very like alpha male relative who lives in a small village and for him to be super, you know, accepting and... Um, I think that that really, again, speaks volumes and with my parents as well, like they're very supportive and accepting and they're always asking when I'm going to bring my wife to Kiev. And <laughs> so I, yeah, like that's just one experience and that's my personal experience. Surely that's not everyone's experience, but that's the same thing as in North America or in Western Europe. You know, some families are accepting and some families are not. And I think that it's really important to understand that there are a lot of really accepting families in Ukraine as well.
Ukraine's future because everyone is wondering how Ukraine will look like after victory. So how do you see our Ukrainian future? 
I think our future looks really bright, and I think that we can see this in our aspirations, in our young people. We can see this in all of our defenders who are are fighting for this future. Um, You know, Ukraine is a candidate for the European Union, and I believe that Ukraine will meet all of those goalposts in order to get full membership status. Um, You know, Ukraine has been working really, really diligently on a lot of anti-corruption strategies. We have a lot of transparency um, initiatives that that are happening in Ukraine in order to create a more transparent, more ethical society. And Honestly, the Ukrainian future is what our soldiers are fighting and dying for right now. And most importantly, the Ukrainian future that I see for us is Ukrainian. There is no possibility, there is no outcome that I see of us being under Russian rule, of us falling to Russia, that will never happen. We will win this war one way or another. I really hope that it is sooner rather than later and with the least amount of victims possible. Um, I think that we will reclaim all of our territories that are temporarily occupied. Uh, Crimea, you know, Donetsk, Mariupol, like these are all cities that are Ukrainian, have always been Ukrainian and will be Ukrainian. Um, And when I look at the future, honestly, um, I really, I see a full reintegrated Ukraine and I see us as a full EU member. I also want to say that as much as we're aspiring to be a EU member, we already share so many of European Values. Values, yes, exactly. Uh, Because we are actually at the center of Europe. And I think it's very important for people to understand that it's not that Ukraine is aspiring to be a EU member. We already almost are because we are at the center of Europe. We're the heart of Europe. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, not to keep bringing this back to queer issues, but I just like I just want to tie in this one other like analogy, I guess, in that when I'm on Twitter, um, one of the most common sort of pushbacks that I see towards Ukrainian integration into the EU is people will always bring up LGBT rights and they will always say, well, how can Ukraine be an EU member if they don't even have legalized gay marriage? But I also want to point out that actually Italy, who is a founding EU member, does not have does not recognize gay marriage. So Italy, who is a founding EU member, Full-fledged member um, only recognizes civil unions and not gay marriage. So the hypocrisy that I see, it's a very um, like East versus West, like Eastern Europe versus Western Europe. And it's not so much that people are picking up on the actual laws or the actual lived experiences of people in these countries. It's just a total bias towards Eastern Europeans and viewing us as backwards or intolerant when... Actually, a Western European country has the exact same laws as us. Um, And to further that, we recently had a petition reach Zelensky and it reached 25,000 signatures to legalize gay marriage. And I think that under normal circumstances, like this would be outstanding. But the fact that our country is invaded and at war and our country is fighting to survive, to, to physically survive, to to win against uh, an imperialist aggressor invader, and that people are still committed to fighting for a more progressive and inclusive society, and they're taking time out of their day to sign this petition and to see a future where 
a future that is more diverse, I think that is also very telling of Ukrainians and who we are as a people. Definitely. Um, however, I just want to point out that currently gay marriage cannot be introduced in Ukraine because the constitution cannot be changed under wartime. But we can still have same-sex unions, which is what Ukrainian activists are working towards right now. Um, I believe that gay marriage isn't in every country that you would expect. Uh, it would be like Poland only has same-sex unions, I'm pretty sure. So, yeah, Ukraine is on the right track, you know, and we're fighting. We're fighting against Russian imperialism. We're fighting against homophobia. We're on the right track. We're on the track to EU and better future and definitely victory. So now let's listen to Eurovision winners Kalush and their song Stefania. Stefania, mamo, mamo, Stefania, rozkwitaje pole, abo nasybije, zaspiwaj meni, mamo, that I get asked often is why did Russia invade Ukraine? What's their gain? And what were they thinking? Um, 
so what I like to tell those people is that there's no use to understanding such evil and elementality and we just should focus instead on winning. So what do you tell those people and why did Russia invade Ukraine? I guess the answer to this is twofold. Um, the first answer is that Russia is an empire. And I know that for a lot of Westerners, that is really difficult to recognize because conventionally, when people think of imperialism and they think of empire, they think of, you know, England and France, the Netherlands colonizing Africa, colonizing Turtle Island, so colonizing North America. And for people, it's very difficult to recognize Russia as an empire. But in fact, Russia has colonized Ukraine for 300 years and has colonized countless other countries. Um, this goes back to the Russian Empire. This goes back to the Soviet Union. And this goes back to the modern day Russian Federation. And so it is a it is a national and cultural mentality of Russia to always be um colonizing its neighbors and invading for resources. And I guess that's the second half of the twofold answer is that Ukraine is very resource rich. And so Russia does actually have quite a bit to gain by colonizing Ukraine in this way. But I think also, more importantly, it is to quash Ukrainian resistance and Ukrainian independence. Ukrainians have long, long, long known that we are an independent culture. We are an independent people. And this goes against uh, the Russian, I guess, script of brotherly nations and the Russian mentality of we are one. Um, and of course, we are not. And I don't remember who it was exactly who said this. It might have been uh, Catherine. I don't want to call her Catherine the Great, but Catherine. Um, and I think it was her who said that the only way to protect Russia is to expand her borders. And so I think that this is a perfect example of Russian mentality is that they don't really, Russians don't care about Russians. Like Russians do not care about the living conditions of people in Siberia. They don't care about the colonized people in Eastern Russia. They don't care about, you know, queer disabled people in Russia. They don't care about their actual citizens. They only want to swallow up whole neighboring people and they want to continue to grow and grow and grow by the most violent means necessary and truly the only way to explain it is that it's this yeah like you said it's evil and it's this Russian mentality of nothing is ever enough they don't care to actually take care of their own people and the Russian people themselves don't care to <laughs> create a society that is better that um, that meets their needs, a society that is transparent, a society that is democratic, a society wherein their voices are heard. Um, yeah, you know, there were some protests in the beginning, but those faded out very, very quickly. And the majority of Russian society could not care less about improving their own living conditions. They simply see that what we have is good. And again, here, this is twofold. Again, materially, what we have is good. We have nice apartments. We have nice appliances. We have nice We have nice things, right? But also, we we have transparency. We have democracy. We, we have independence. We have sovereignty. We have open and free elections. Um, we have the possibility to protest. We, we have freedom in that sense. And for them to look at us, because in their eyes, we are lesser than them, right? We are 
what they call little Russians. We are a lesser, more diminutive version of them. And for them to see us succeeding, they can't have that. So for them to see a people that they consider less than, for us to have something good and to be progressing, um, they simply couldn't stand that and they had to destroy it. That's all very true. And another thing that often comes up in conversations, people here wonder, well, why do you say that all Russians are bad? Why do you think the not all Russians narrative is harmful, Maria? Honestly, <laughs> I think there there's such a good analogy to be made with not all men. Like I think when we talk about the dangers of sexism and misogyny and violence against women, when we talk about these things as activists in the West, um, especially as like left-leaning people, this is really widely understood by by an audience, right? Like people understand the dangers of sexism and violence against women and misogyny. And um, when we hear something like not all men, like, of course, there is the understanding that, you know, we are not talking about the people who are actively working as allies or people who are actively good and actively contributing to women's emancipation, women's safety, to reproductive justice. We're not talking about those people. We are talking about a greater um, patriarchal culture that informs societal and cultural thought and practice. And this can be, again, like equated with when we hear not all Russians. Like, Are there some Russians who are good people and who are, you know, actively pro-Ukraine? Like, yeah, some. But I would say that in my experience and in the experience of literally everyone that I know, those Russians are very, very, very far and few in between. Um, like even the ones that I know who are so-called activists in the queer community, because I'm, I'm pretty active, um, I guess, online in the queer community. And when I see those Russians, the way that they talk about Ukraine, it's still from that very, um, from that like perspective of Crimea is Russian and Ukraine doesn't deserve independence. And actually, we are the victims. And how can we stand up against uh, Putin when we're the victims? And they, rather than actually be allies, towards Ukrainians and be allies for Ukraine and, and fight for Ukraine and fight against a genocide, they flip the script and they always insist on making the conversation about them, how they're actually the victims in their own country. Um, and so I guess like, yeah, like maybe there are some Russians who are for Ukraine and are actually doing the work. But like I said, in my experience, it's it's very, very few. And um, those quote unquote, good Russians, they like they always inherently will revert back to themselves, their struggles, how difficult it is for them. And I think when we hear that good Russians script, it forces us as Ukrainians to then, I guess, like reassure them and console them and be like, oh, we didn't mean to hurt your feelings when we are the ones that are being massacred, like our families are being murdered. And here we are consoling them about their hurt feelings. So I think that the not all Russians, it's just so damaging and it's so hurtful. And for people in the West to understand better why that's so problematic, just think about whether you would tell um, you know, a rape victim, if you would tell them, look them in the eye and tell them, oh, like, I'm so sorry what happened to you, but not all men. I want you to think about that when you look a Ukrainian in the eye and you say not all Russians. That's very true. Another thing about, quote unquote, good Russians is that their leader is Navalny and they often don't see a problem with him. The thing is that he 
considers Crimea to be Russian. He thinks it's better for Crimea to be Russian. He justified invasion of Georgia in 2008. And there are so many other instances where he is openly imperial, has imperialistic views, but quote unquote good Russians still support him and think he is the leader of the new democratic Russia. What do you think about that? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Navalny has called Georgians rodents. So I think that's all we need to know about him as a progressive leader. Um, yeah, he sees no no issue with empire and with the invasion of Crimea, which is Ukrainian territory. Um, and there is also footage of him marching in really far right wing uh, ultra nationalist marches. And I think that if that is who th is their opposition, that is the best of their best. Then I think that's really a reflection of Russian society. Like that is truly the best that they could come up with. A person who calls Georgians rodents and believes in the occupation of so sovereign territory and marches in ultra nationalist far right marches. If that is your that is your savior, that is your anti Putin, then I think you have a lot of introspection to do. And I think that a lot of people think that um that like Russians are a product of Putin, like the bad Russians, quote unquote, bad Russians are a product of Putin. But really, Putin is a product of Russia. Like he represents Russians. And if you want to see this for yourself, you can subscribe to any Telegram channel or go on any Ukrainian content creators accounts, whether it's on Instagram or TikTok or whatever social media, and just look at the comments that Russians leave Ukrainians. Look at the commentary that your average Russian puts out there. And that's all you need to know about the average Russian and the quote-unquote good Russian. Thank you, Maria. Let's listen to the song Netvoya Vina by Okan Elze about war. Bine Sonse dem Malo kto znaje Šoš bude z nem Šo bude zavtra Sa 
tihi noći Vid dave dnje Hilja kale pohelilu se Mama komuš ne voleli se today to be joined by Maria to discuss the one-year anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Maria, can you tell us why we tend to say full-scale invasion rather than just invasion? Let's talk about that because I noticed that not enough people here actually know about the fact that the war didn't start in February 2022. Yeah, definitely. I think if you have seen any sort of content or tweets or even conversations by Ukrainians and between Ukrainians, you might have noticed that we often say the full-scale invasion of Ukraine rather than the Ukraine war or just the war. Um, this is a really important distinction to be made because a lot of people are under the impression that the war started on February 24th of last year when, in fact, Ukraine was invaded by Russia eight and a half years ago in 2014. Uh, Russia has been waging war on Ukrainian territory for the last over eight years, almost nine years. And I don't think that too many people in the West are familiar with this. Uh, in reality, after we had our Maidan revolution, Russia invaded and annexed Crimea and also waged war in eastern Ukraine in Donbass. Um, 
and people are very, very unfamiliar with this reality. I think if you were to ask, you know, an average Westerner how long the war has been going on, they would say 11 months, but it has been almost nine years. And so this is why we make that distinction and we say the full-scale invasion. Um, and it's important to know that actually 4,000 Ukrainians have been killed Already, like leading up to February 24th, 4,000 Ukrainians have been killed in the last nine years, and certainly not enough people know about that. That's true. I would also like to bring up, we were talking about uh, Russia's invasions and why Russia invaded Ukraine. I want to also talk about the fact that the reason Russia invaded Ukraine on a bigger scale is because Russia went and punished so many times before when Russia occupied part of Moldova, which is now, quote-unquote, is called Transnistria, I think. Some made-up name. Yeah. <laughs> Russia also invaded Chechnya and Georgia. And Twice. Many, yes, exactly. And many people don't realize that, don't know that. And that's also one of the reasons why Russia keeps doing this, is because Russia keeps going unpunished. And that's very dangerous for the world, because other evil forces may see that and also attack their neighbors, which is already happening. Yeah, and... You know, Russia also has the Wagner paramilitary, so they also have a private military that is exceptionally violent, and they have um, they have been involved in conflicts and wars in Mali, in Central African Republic. Um, they have really horrific videos and footage um, where. They have decapitated um, victims in various countries, and they have either played soccer with the heads of these people, they have put decapitated heads on stakes, and they have filmed this. Um, this is an extremely, extremely dangerous and violent terrorist organization. It's very well known that this is Putin's private military, and the world has, again, not done anything to hold either uh, you know, Russian leadership or Wagner themselves accountable and responsible. And so these crimes continue to go unpunished. And this gives the green light and the go ahead to other dictatorships in this world. So while all of these atrocities are happening in Ukraine and have also happened in Georgia and Chechnya, um, this just creates a blueprint for future massacres. And I think the fact that this has not been addressed by a wider global community is incredibly, incredibly dangerous and sets a very dangerous precedent.
Welcome back, everyone. We just listened to the song Zombie by Cranberries. And now we're back with our show dedicated to the one-year anniversary of Russia's full-scale war against Ukraine. My name is Sasha, and I'm here joined today by a prominent Ukrainian activist, Maria. Maria, let's talk about communism and USSR. Because I noticed that so many people who've never been to USSR like to praise it a lot. Can you tell us why that is the case and why it's a wrong thing to do? I think a lot of people, especially young leftists, have a misconstrued vision of what communism is. I think that a lot of people in the West are, um, I would say, rightfully, um, I guess, disgruntled with uh, unbridled capitalism and sort of the discrepancy in wealth and the conditions that a lot of people live in, um, you know, abject homelessness, um, et cetera, et cetera. Again, like looking at the wealth of billionaires and how 1% own, you know, 90% of the world's wealth, and they look for alternatives. However, um, they're looking for alternatives in the wrong places. And I think that a lot of young leftists and leftists in general um, misconstrue, yeah, they misconstrue what they think communism is. They think of it as this like utopia where wealth is distributed equally and there is gender equality and um, there is, you know, equal opportunity and equal access to all kinds of resources, whether that is housing or employment, um, education, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, In reality, if we look at how communism was Um, actually acted out in countries who suffered under that, um, I guess, like ideology, we see a very, very different reality. So um, there's a story from my grandmother, and I've actually heard other people share very similar stories. So she at one point worked in a bakery and Food was so scarce. Money was so scarce. Resources were so scarce. You know, it was just um, absolute scarcity in in every imaginable way. And so in order to get enough flour to bake a loaf of bread at home, she would roll up her sleeves and she would dip them in water and then roll her arms in loose flour so that the flour would cake on to the water on her skin and then roll down her sleeves. And in that way, she would smuggle out little bits of flour, like little bit by little bit and get home and scrape it off and then collect that in a bowl to eventually one day have enough flour to make a loaf of bread. Like that's how scarce food was in the Soviet Union and Soviet Ukraine. And young communists now, they view communism as abundance. They view it as equality. And that's not at all what it was. It was an incredibly dangerous, vile tool of oppression. And it really strikes me. I find it really striking how many young queer people are really subscribed to this ideology because homosexuality and trans identities were completely criminalized in the Soviet Union. Um, If you actually look at... The Soviet years, you will not find any any openly queer academics, intellectuals, writers, poets, artists, 
anyone because if you were queer, you were sent to a psychiatric institution. This was not some kind of liberal utopia. Um, this was not a place where you could be free in your identity. This wasn't a place where you had abundance and choice. This wasn't uh, an ideology where you were provided for. This was uh, a total and utter tool of oppression. And um, in so many ways, we weren't allowed to speak our language. Uh, you weren't allowed to be openly queer if you were. If you, um, you know, if you were perceived in any way, in any, any way to be a so-called enemy of the state, you were deported or you were executed immediately. So it's it's always just really shocking for me when especially young people and people who are like left of center identify with this ideology because they truly don't understand how horrific those living conditions were for our families. And um, like, thankfully, I was born towards the very end of the Soviet Union. So like, I didn't live under those conditions. But I've heard enough stories from obviously like my parents and my grandparents' generations to know how horrible that was. And I think the most, probably the most striking thing for me is that, you know, these so-called communists in the West, they will always say to, you know, listen to and recognize and honor people's lived experiences. But when Eastern Europeans and Ukrainians in particular talk about our lived experiences under communism, we're always written off as just like delusional or not knowledgeable on the topic. When our families have lived through this system of oppression. We know what it is. Um, and yet somehow our experiences are always diminished and we are then called Nazis. That's so true. So many people don't realize that communism survived of exploitation of people who were seen to be uh, inferior and those who were called little brothers or sisters. So let's talk about this myth of brotherly nations that Russia likes to push with its propaganda. Why does it exist and what does it do? I guess the myth exists as their way of unifying Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. Um, and they view themselves as the big brother, and they view Ukraine and Belarus as the little brothers. And they use this to justify occupation, and they use this to justify invasion, because in the same way that an abusive you know, partner, an abusive manipulator manipulates their victim into saying, I'm just doing this for your best interest. I'm protecting you. Uh, I'm doing this for you. You don't even understand what you're, you know, what you're missing out without me. This is all for you. I'm protecting you. This is the exact same rhetoric and narrative that Russia as an empire uses with these so-called brotherly nations, that they are the bigger brother, they are protecting us from ourselves, we just don't know what is good for us, we're too stupid or naive um, or backwards or primitive to even understand what we need ourselves, so they're protecting us from ourselves. It's very funny because Kiev and Ukraine, we're actually older than Moscow and Russia, but somehow Russia tries to put this myth of brotherly nations and that Russia is the older brother. Why do you think so many Ukrainians speak Russian even though Ukraine is older than Russia? 
Yeah, that's pretty ridiculous. So Kiev is actually significantly older than Moscow. Kiev was founded in 482, I believe, and Moscow was still a swamp when Kiev was founded. Moscow didn't come into existence until, I think, 1172. Um, so that is a significant amount of time that Kiev existed and was developing um, while Moscow was still a swamp. So... Um, why do so many Ukrainians speak Russian? That is a really good question. Um, Russian was also my first language. And this is, again, because of Russian colonialism. So uh, there were over 300 different legislative and political repressions against the Ukrainian language dating back to the Russian Empire. So dating back over 300 years. Um, and of course, this was even further um, further an issue under Soviet rule of Ukraine. But essentially, as an empire, um, Russia had to negate and not even negate, it had to repress local languages as inferior in order to propel this narrative that, um, you know, they are the dominant culture, the correct culture, the superior culture. And if the rest of the nations, you know, wanted to be, uh, you know, as intelligent, as accomplished, as respected, then we had to speak their language. And, you see this in, in every colonized country in the world. You see this here in Canada. Um, so asking why Ukrainians speak Russian is very similar to asking why indigenous people in Canada speak English. It's because it was for, in, in, both, in both scenarios, in both cases, it was forced upon us through violence, through oppression, and through punishment. Uh, we weren't allowed to speak in our languages, both as Ukrainians and as indigenous people in Canada. Um, we were punished, and oftentimes that punishment was through really brutal um, work regimes and gulags, or it was outright death. And so for a lot of people, they adopted Russian out of necessity and out of survival. And actually, in my own personal experience, my dad comes from a Ukrainian-speaking family. Um, my dad's side of the family only speaks Ukrainian. And my mom was actually a Ukrainian folk dancer, so she performed Ukrainian folk dance. And both of my parents raised me and speak with me only in Russian because... And again, I was born in the Soviet Union, but in those years, that was really the only way to have um, any opportunity or, or any future in whether it was in academia or in government or to have any chance at a good and stable job was to speak Russian. And that is just the unfortunate reality of colonialism. And you see that everywhere in the world, not just in Ukraine. I was born a little bit later, so I didn't get to see the Soviet <laughs> Union, thankfully. But the this idea that Russian is somehow better than Ukrainian still stayed. And even though my parents, my dad's side speaks Ukrainian, my mom's side speaks uh, Russian usually. But uh, in our family, we spoke Russian at first. I only spoke Ukrainian with my grandma, uh, which obviously changed. I remember when I was 
10 years old when the war started initially. I saw the news. I saw the devastation that Russia caused. And I was like, I have to start speaking Ukrainian now. And then I went to class. I think I was like in third grade or something. No, maybe. No. And I, I started speaking Ukrainian. And someone said, you look like an idiot when you speak Ukrainian. And I think it stayed with me for such a long time that it took me so many years to start slowly speaking Ukrainian in regular life again. And of course, when the full-scale war happened, I just started speaking Ukrainian because I my my body just can't just resist. It resists Russian. I can't comprehend it. I don't want to speak it. I don't want to know it. I can trade it for literally anything. Offer me anything if you can promise me that I can forget Russian. That would be so great. Um, so that's the effects of Russian colonialism. And I also want to go back to Russian colonialism and Crimea. Because I think it's very important to mention that Crimean Tatars also suffered from Russia and they still suffer, uh, not only since the occupation of Crimea, annexation, um, but also the times before. Let's talk about deportation of Crimean Tatars and uh, how it's still affecting them and what Russia is doing right now. Yeah, so the indigenous population of Crimea are the Crimean Tatars, and they were very violently deported en masse in 1944. Um, I believe almost the entire population, upwards of 90% of the population, was deported um, on cattle cars in the winter to either Kazakhstan or Siberia, and it, it was very brutal. It was extremely harsh conditions, and the testimonials that I've read, um, you know, if anyone passed away on the journey, and the journey was, was gruesome, if anyone passed away on the journey, their bodies were just flung off the cattle cars uh, just as the train continued moving. Um, and so this is the indigenous population of Crimea, of Ukraine, and they were displaced by Russia. And they did not return until what year? Do you remember? I do not remember, but I'm guessing it was after the independence of Ukraine. Yeah, I think it would have been like early 90s. Probably. Um, and it's just, again, that goes to show how violent Russia is to every culture that isn't its own and um, that this what's happening in Ukraine right now is, is nothing new, that these repressions and occupations and annexations have existed as long as Russia has existed. That's true. And Crimean Tatars who are currently resisting Russia in occupied Crimea, they suffer from Russian regime as well because they get imprisoned uh, for whatever small reasons Russia finds just to restrain them and keep their spirit locked up. Uh, so it's still happening right as we speak. Um, and I just want to highlight that Crimean Tatars are also fighting for Ukraine's independence right now, even though we may not hear about them as often. But there are currently so many people in prisons in Crimea um, who deserve to be freed. And that's why ex that's exactly why we need to liber liberate as as quickly as possible Crimea because those people are suffering currently and dying in prisons uh, from Russians. When strangers are coming They come to your house They kill you all and say we're not guilty Not guilty Where's your mind? 
Humanity cries, they think you are gods, but everyone dies. Don't swallow my soul, our souls. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Ukrainian Student Union's program dedicated to the one-year anniversary of Russia's full-scale war against Ukraine. My name is Sasha, and I'm here today joined by Maria, an activist from Ukraine, and we're talking about Russia's full-scale war against Ukraine. Maria, we've talked about the obvious threats that Ukrainians have to live through every single day because of Russians, but now let's talk about the threats for the world. Tell us why it's so important to support Ukraine in its fight for freedom. I think what's really important to note here is that the Russian aggression will never end at just Ukraine. It will never end at Ukrainian borders. As Ukrainians, we know this. We know that it will continue and that all of our neighbors are also at risk of very similar style invasion, occupation, aggression, and genocide. Um, Now, that's not to say that Ukraine isn't worth defending just because, even if it was to end at just Ukraine, of course, you know, this is um, incredibly important to defend our right to sovereignty and to independence. But that being said, we also know that it will not end at just us. And many, many, many Ukrainian activists, journalists, um, etc. have 
have spoken about this and have spoken about how this does pose a threat. Um, we can just look at recent examples of how Russian missiles have entered the airspace of neighboring countries. I think most recently it's been Moldova. Um, and now there are talks of Russia planning a coup in Moldova. So as Ukrainians, we know that it will never end at just us. And this, of course, poses a, a greater and wider threat to the European continent. And I think that if there are people who think that this ends at just Ukraine, um, you know, don't kid yourselves. We have seen this before. We've seen it, as you said earlier in the show, we've seen it in Chechnya, we've seen it in Georgia, uh, we've seen their role in Syria, and, and we're seeing it right now in Ukraine. But um, again, like Russia will not end at Ukraine. This will only continue further and um, Ukraine will not lose. Ukraine will never lose. But in the hypothetical situation that it did, this would only further embolden Russian leadership and the Russian population overall to continue expanding its borders through aggression. Um, and quite frankly, I've, I've seen comments from Again, like ordinary Russians saying that they want Finland. They want to overtake Finland. And people would say, well, that's insane. Finland's part of the EU. That could never happen. And um, I think that we live in an era and in a time where nothing is impossible. And again, just to loop back to our previous you know, comment about how this further emboldens other dictatorships um, and other world leaders. Um, this, again, just gives the green light to, say, China to do the same thing in Taiwan. And um, whatever other dictatorships are currently a threat to their neighbors, this is their prime example of why they can continue with that, because they see that Russia is going largely unpunished aside from some sanctions. Exactly. No one is safe while Russia is still such an, um, a huge imperialistic force. Um, so what do you think Canadians should do to support Ukraine? What can they do right now? The first and foremost thing that Ukrainians, uh, sorry, <laughs> that Canadians need to do is become informed about the situation. I think that there are still a lot of Canadians that maybe um, are very are, are familiar with the full-scale war on a very surface level. Um, I think if you ask your average Canadian, they would maybe say, "I know that there is a war in Ukraine. Uh, I know that Russia invaded," um, but they would probably not know a whole lot more context than that. And um, you and I both know people and have friends who didn't even know that the war in Ukraine has been going on for the last almost nine years. And so the first thing that you need to do is acquaint yourself with the history of the Russian uh, empire, Russian imperialism, Russian war crimes in other countries. Um, you know, please go and Google Russia and Georgia, Russia and Syria. Please see what Russia has done in these countries. Um, please stay informed on what Russians are currently doing in Ukraine. Um, I know that for a lot of people, it can become overwhelming. I know that for a lot of people, there is um, so much tragedy that is happening in the world. Um, you know, like most recently with the earthquake in Turkey and Syria, there's a lot of heartache and there is a lot of really difficult and painful things in the world. But um, we cannot be, you know, apathetic to what is happening. We absolutely need to stay informed because the moment when we decide that this is too much and that we need to tap out and that we cannot devote our time and energy to this, this is when Russia wins. This is what Russia wants. Um, so please 
please stay informed. Please follow um, Ukrainian sources. A lot, a lot of Ukrainian sources are in English. Um, if you don't know where to look or what to read, um, please, you can follow Kiev Independent. They are on Instagram. They are on Twitter. They're on all social medias. And this is one of Ukraine's premier uh, English language newspapers. It's an independent newspaper. It's independently funded. It is not aligned with any political party. The journalists are incredible. Um, and they deliver the most current news uh, in very unbiased ways. So again, that's Kyiv Independent. Um, you can also just follow Ukraine.ua on Instagram. This is the official Instagram account of Ukraine. Um, all of the captions are in Ukrainian and in English. Most of the posts themselves, uh, like the visual posts, the graphics are in English. Um, but those would be my first two recommendations. Maybe you have some others. Yes, of course, I would recommend to follow your page <laughs> at Vinok Collective uh, because I love the content that you're posting. You're talking about culture and the war and everything. I think it's a very good way of staying informed about Ukraine. Um, I think another way that Canadians can help is also by donating any any amount that they can because in Ukrainian currency, it's uh, even like $3 is a lot for Ukrainians. So can you tell us useful resources where we can donate? Definitely. So you can donate to United24. That is the official um, Ukrainian government donation collection agency. Um, this is one that I recommend for non-Ukrainians because for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, you can donate in many different currencies. You can donate in US dollar. You can donate in euro. Um, it's, it's incredibly easy. You can donate by card. The website itself is very user-friendly. Um, it it's very easy to navigate. So if you are an English speaker, you're not someone who's been to Ukraine, you're not very familiar with Ukrainian language, um, there are no hurdles. Everything is made really easy and really accessible for you. And also the other thing that I really like about United24 is that it is incredibly transparent. Um, the website issues either weekly or monthly transparency receipts. Um, so if you're someone that likes to have that level of accountability, you have all those financial reports to look back on and see how your donations are spent. So if you are interested in that, that is u24.gov.ua. Um, another one is Come Back Alive. So this is actually the biggest organization providing support to the armed forces of Ukraine since the initial invasion in 2014. Um, they have supported hundreds of military units and they also operate with full transparency and open financial reporting. So this is Come Back Alive. You can also follow them on Instagram where they post different infographics showing um, their expenses and what your donations have gone to. So um, that is one that has a lot of public confidence behind it. And I would say most Ukrainians, uh, every Ukrainian that I know has donated to that. And most Ukrainians in Ukraine have also donated. It's, it's a very reputable organization um, and certainly not one that would lend itself to scams or anything. So that is a really important one. Uh, you can also donate to the Pretula Foundation. Um, so this is a foundation um, that produces uh, protective gear, optic devices, drones, medical supplies, transport vehicles. Um, 
so that is another one. And then the last one that I will talk about is Hospitalers. So this is a foundation made up entirely of volunteers. Um, these are volunteer medics and paramedics, and they have carried out um, a minimum of 5,200 evacuations. So they've done 3,900 evacuations from 2014 until February 24th of last year, and an additional um, 9,000 since then. Um, so again, this is someone that you can trust. Um, they evacuate and save wounded people from the front lines, and they're doing incredibly dangerous and brave work. Uh, so again, that is hospitalers. I would also like to remind people that we have a link tree in our Instagram bio at UBC underscore USU, where you can donate money to various organizations. If you want to see your money directed towards saving animals from the front lines or evacuating people, or if you want to direct your money directly to queer soldiers or female soldiers, you can do that and so much more at our link tree on Instagram, again, UBC underscore USU. And while we're talking about UBC, I would like to thank the university for helping me financially and not only financially, um, but unfortunately that hasn't been experience of every Ukrainian student that reaches out to UBC, which is why we as the Ukrainian Student Union are currently working towards broadening this financial help from UBC. And we encourage the university and any university that's hearing us right now to please help more Ukrainians um, because we're facing so many hardships right now. And there aren't that many Ukrainians that I know on campus. So it shouldn't be too hard from my imagining, considering everything that Ukrainians have to live through. So please, if you can help more Ukrainian students in UBC. And now let's listen to the song Silhouette by Set Sweet and Struktura Shchastya.
And we're concluding our show dedicated to the one-year anniversary of Russia's full-scale war against Ukraine. I'm here joined by Maria, a prominent Ukrainian activist, uh, also known as at Vinok Collective on Instagram. Maria, the last question I have for you is about Ukrainian victory, because so many people think that, you know, Ukraine should just cede its territories to Russia and be done with it, have peace. Um, so let's talk about the fact that it's not that easy. Uh, tell us why it's a wrong thinking. Tell us why Ukraine cannot give up its territories and what does Ukrainian look, future look like? Yeah, so here I think it's really important that we distinguish between peace and victory. Um, oftentimes I'll see the slogan, peace for Ukraine. And for me, that is not a solution for a lot of Ukrainians. That is actually um, offensive. Like, I, I, know, I, I know that a lot of people will be confused as to why, how, how could peace for Ukraine be offensive. And um, I'll hopefully try and explain that for you now. And it's because peace and victory are very different. Um, in theory, we could have peace today. As you said, if we ceded our territories, um, we became Russia, the bombings would stop. And in theory, there would be peace. Um, again, in theory, there is peace in Mariupol. Um, it's no longer being bombed. Um, it's no longer in the state that it was um, when Russia first invaded, and, because now it's fully occupied. Um, victory, though, is very different. So victory differs from peace in that victory means the complete and full liberation and reintegration of all of our temporarily occupied territories. Um, this includes Mariupol, this includes Crimea, this includes Donbass, this includes everywhere that is currently occupied by Russia. Um, the reintegration of these territories and the liberation of these ter territories is the only possible outcome for Ukrainian victory, and this is what we are fighting for. Um, we are not going to cede any territory to Russia Russia because this has been taken uh, illegally. This has been taken through force. It's been taken violently. Um, and as Ukrainians, we want the full liberation of our entire sovereign territory. Yes, and that's exactly why we need as many weapons as possible, not only because we need it to uh, protect ourselves, but also to bring our territory back. And also because under Budapest Memorandum, other countries, I believe USA and UK, I think, mm -hmm. uh, are required to send us weapons to defend, so we can defend ourselves from Russia. So that's why we need as many weapons as possible. And that's why this whole peace and uh, narrative does not work, because we can't have peace without victory. We can't have actual peace where Ukrainians live peacefully and, and are not terrorized by Russians every day. So that's why we need a lot of weapons. So we encourage all governments to please do whatever you can to give Ukraine all the best weapons because we really need it and we really need your support. Yeah, and I think a lot of our listeners don't know the fact that Leading up to the Budapest Memorandum, Ukraine actually had the third largest nuclear arsenal in the world, and we gave that up entirely when we signed the Budapest Memorandum, and the signatories, yes, as you said, included the U.S. and the U.K. Um, as guarantors that if Russia was to ever invade Ukraine, that they would uh, fully back us in our defense, and so 
this is something that should be legally binding and we are we are um it is our right to defend ourselves against russian invasion it is our right to receive the weapons that were promised to us in the budapest memorandum it is our right to have weapons to have tanks to have fighter jets um self-defense is our right. It's it's not a gift. It's not charity. Um, it's not prolonging the war. What prolongs the war is Russia existing and Russia attacking Ukraine and the inter- the international community standing by and Schultz talking about how we can't provoke uh, Putin and Macron talking about how we can't humiliate Putin. Like, this is what prolongs the war. What ends the war is weapons. And honestly, if you had asked me before February 24th, um, if I was a pacifist, I probably would have said yes. And I know that a lot of people still identify with that label. A lot of Westerners and a lot of non-Ukrainians still identify with that pacifism label. And um, there is no pacifism in war. You um, you cannot defend yourself with humanitarian aid like diapers. You can't defend yourself with formula. You can't defend yourself with sleeping bags. Um, we need weapons. Um because weapons is what prevents us needing those other things. With the right weapons, we aren't going to need, you know, sleeping bags and baby food and formula and diapers. Um, So please write to your government officials, um, stay educated, research why weapons are the correct decision and the only correct decision for supporting Ukraine, and contact your representatives to ensure that Ukraine is getting the weapons that we deserve and that we have a right to receive. Exactly. And I think that concludes our program for today. Maria, thank you so much for joining me and sharing your experience and knowledge. And thank you to everyone who listened to us and our show dedicated to the one-year anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Please stand with Ukraine. Glory to Ukraine.
Мало ще палава, мовила мені, твого двору вже нема. Покоління мінялося, запам'ятали стіни, як дитина, ці писала і мені навіки. А знову світла ніч, без мене вже гуляла. А може коли-небудь я вже би не жалів. За минуле, що летіло в дальне, наче ворон, а я вдома зберігаю свою ностальгію. Я тут 